Amen. You may be seated. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we're looking at verses 11 through 17 this morning. This is a bit of a heavy opening, but it sets the context, and I think it's important that we, that we do that. And so I, I, I looked up some statistics and found that 50,000-plus children die in the U.S. every year. And it's a devastating, obviously, devastating experience to lose a child. The psychological impact is tremendous. People go through anxiety uh, through the loss of attachment. Um, as a parent, you feel guilt out of an inability to protect your child. Some will go through existential crisis, you know, wondering about the meaning of life, their purpose. And so it's, it's, a, it's an extreme circumstance to be in. That's really the circumstances we, we find ourselves in this passage in Luke chapter 7. Um, a few months ago, Matt preached on the first part of this chapter and the centurion um, and the, the faith of the centurion. You have Jesus healing this servant on his, who was on his deathbed. But here the man has already died. And so this is an even more severe circumstance. Um, all sorrow, all kinds of sorrow, all of it, it's a reminder that we live in a fallen world. Right? That, that we have contributed to this corruption with our own sin. And we experience, we experience the consequences of the sin of others. It's inevitable. And so you can't pinpoint every instance of sorrow to a particular sin. Right? It's not like we blame the parents of, of the death of children or something like that. But, but sin is why we experience sorrow and pain. And sin always leads to that. It leads to our misery and our sadness and so it is only Jesus who can replace the despair of physical death with the hope of eternal life. And that's what we want to focus on this morning. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, it is a heavy topic to consider. And we recognize just the, the gravity and the weight of um, talking about death. Lord, many of us avoid funerals. We, we want nothing to do with them because of how uncomfortable they are. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use this morning, this time that we have to consider um, the hope that we have, even in light of death, in light of the inevitableness of death for us all. Lord, arrest our minds and our hearts this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, help us to have hearts that are softened and prepared for the reception of this truth. 
that we would be challenged and changed, transformed by the work of your spirit as we receive it in faith. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read with me Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the first thing we see is a funeral procession. If you're following along in your outline, the first point is a funeral procession, verses 11 through 12. And he, he transitions from the healing this centurion's servant to Nain. He goes about six miles south, southeast of his hometown in Nazareth. To Nain. It's probably an area he would have been familiar, familiar with in his youth. And the first thing they encounter is this man wrapped lying on a pallet, lying on a bier, as some translations use. And he's, it's, it's not a coffin, it's not enclosed, it's open. And so they, you would just see the man's body wrapped in some kind of cloth. Um, depending on the on the wealth of the family, it might be de- you know, determine the quality of the cloth. But e- either way, they they could see exactly what's taking place. And you notice too, this is something that's important to to consider: is there's there's a considerable crowd coming with Jesus into Nain, right? There it says his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So this great crowd is following him just outside of the town. And then this considerable crowd from the town is with her. Now, you know, you can oftentimes determine the significance of an individual based upon the size of the audience at a funeral. And so if it's a great crowd, a considerable crowd is following her, then we can only imagine either the son himself was someone who was popular or had some kind of reputation there, maybe even a leader in the community, um, or they, he belonged to a family that had that reputation. But we know she was a widow. Right? And so we learn the, a little more of the, the challenges that she faced. Now they're heading out to this family burial plot, which is probably nothing more than a small cave. And prior to this, they would have had to go open that cave, take the bones of the father and collect them in a bone box and then move them to the side so that there's room on this shelf for the sun to be laid. And this would be how they would continue to bury any future members of the family into this same 
plot. So you can see what's taking place. It's very obvious as the crowd is gathering and these bearers are walking with the body on a pallet, and in front of that would be the mother, weeping and wailing and, and leading the procession. So they would have heard this. They would have, they would have heard loud wailing. Uh, they would have heard instruments like flutes and clashing cymbals. In fact, they, they hired professionals to help with this part of the funeral service. And we think, well, that's so strange. Like, why would you have to hire someone to weep? Well, it was a, an act of compassion upon the mother, right? An act of compassion to allow her, her weeping not to be the only thing that people hear, to bring all the attention and focus upon her. So you'd have someone uh, at even, even poor families, and the assumption is that this is not probably a poor family because of the considerable crowd that's gathered, but who knows? Could be a poor family, and it's just a, the, a, they had a reputation, but... Either way, they would have had professionals there because even poor families had to hire at least one mourner, one woman to mourn, and two flute players. At the very least, they would have heard that. Uh, but in all likelihood, with a crowd that size, there's more than that. There's many professional whalers who are drawing attention really to themselves in their, in their weeping and allowing people to express their own sorrow. Without, without embarrassment. It was an act of compassion upon them to do that. Some of them would have been carrying ointment and spices for the body right, to offset the smell of decomposition might have already been setting in. Um, again, it was the, the custom for the mother to be out front, and we learn at that point that she was a widow, that this was her only son reminds us of another individual who was in those circumstances who had lost her husband and her two sons Naomi right so so she Naomi we learned was filled with bitterness in that first chapter of Ruth and yet she was still hanging by a thread to her God she was still acknowledging God and acknowledging his sovereignty over her life. So you imagine something similar might be taking place with this widow. Maybe she has no clue who God is, but she is emotionally distressed, and she is in severe circumstances because just like Naomi, she, she would have lost any sense of stability. More than likely, her son would have been her only caregiver. Right? The, with being a widow, losing her husband, she's now dependent upon her son. Um, and so, so her situation is difficult. Now, the, in the text, we read that he was a young man, but it's not a child. And this isn't a, a small little, little child. This is a, an adult man. But he's probably, because he's called young man, he's probably somewhere up to 40 years old. And so he would have most likely been in that at a working age, caring for his mom. So that's the situation she's in. It's distressing. Scripture, in fact, compares her situation to the most difficult situations anyone would ever face in life. And mourning compounds when you lose an only son. On top of that, she had lost her husband. There's, there's almost no one else you could compare it to. It's, it, 
you couldn't say, well, I understand your pain. And she was unique in, in many ways in the kind of pain she was going through at that point. It's hard to know what to say when you face situations like that. We experienced that in seminary when some friends of ours who, about a year ahead of us, um, they had a daughter who, at 20 weeks, 22 weeks uh, pregnant, the wife found out that her daughter was diagnosed with trisomy 18, which is also known as Edwards syndrome. 90% of the children who are diagnosed with this die in the womb, and half of those who are born die within the first two months. Her name was Magdalena. She ended up living 167 days. She was a miracle. I mean, many doctors, they were, they were following her situation because they were learning things um, about, about the disease and about um, treatment. But the funeral service was utterly crushing. I mean, the, this was a, a seminary family. Everyone knew them and loved them, and we had the, they did the funeral at the seminary chapel. So we were all gathered there. Everyone is in tears the whole way through. There's not a dry eye in the room. We praised God for his mysterious providence. Um, and, and we acknowledged his compassionate love. And they selected this song. In fact, it's the, the name of their blog. The blog, um, they started to just track the journey to, to kind of journal through uh, the life of Magdalena to share their experiences and their hopes and, and their prayers. Uh, they titled it, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go. I can't sing that. My kids said, are you going to cry this morning? <laughs> I said, there's a good chance. <sighs> I'm already emotional from saying goodbye. So, oh, love that will not let me go. I, I cannot honestly sing that song without reflecting upon that funeral, these, this family. This verse says, oh, joy that seekest me through pain. I cannot close... Let me start again. I cannot close my heart to thee. Right? We, in pain, what do we want to do? We want to isolate. We want to tune everyone out. We want to be alone. But... God is seeking us through that. O oh, joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. It's, it's a beautiful hymn and a beautiful testimony to this family who was trusting in the resurrection hope and so, you know, again, we're in seminary. These are future pastors. We're all thinking, okay, I've got to have something good to say to this family and what they're going through. You know, I mean, it's got to be, be, you know, just chock full of scripture and meaningful, and, and yet you come up speechless in situations like this. How do, you, how do you comfort them? What do you say? 
Everything feels inadequate. I remember several months later talking to the father and, and just saying, look, the only thing I can say is, is, is that the resurrection hope that we have is, is, um, is enough, and that, it, that it's the comfort we need. And he said, that's all I need to hear. So the Lord has, has used their testimony in many ways. Um, and he has blessed that family, and they've had additional children, and um, they continue to testify about Magdalena's impact upon them, and, and they continue to share her story. But here's, here's where I want to go with this, because rightly considered, recognizing the circumstances that this widow is in, the circumstances that families go through, uh, even the harshest and most severe circumstances remind us of the consequences of sin. We have to recognize that we live in a fallen world, that we contribute in s- ourselves to that corruption that we, that we um, face. And so there is a, a sense in which even, even this experience is a, is a call to a renewed hatred of sin, a renewed hatred of our own sin, and of the sin and corruption that we deal with, right? Resurrections only follow death. It's a harsh reminder, right? Death is a harsh reminder of sin and misery. But it always leads us to that hope of the resurrection for those who are united to Christ. Paul encourages us in that way in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. We read this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Notice how he brackets the theme of resurrection. It's the resurrection of Christ and it ends with his resurrection, the, the promise and the hope that he has of his own enjoyment of the resurrection of the dead. And he, he brackets that thing, or he brackets suffering and death with that thing. Right? So in, you go from the resurrection of Christ to the suffering and death of Christ to the enjoyment of our resurrection secured by Christ on the cross and in his own resurrection. So it's a, it's a beautiful passage that illustrates exactly what I'm trying to say here, right? Repentance involves grieving over our sin. Jeremiah called his hearers to make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation. He's calling the people of Israel to repent. And the best illustration he can give them is to say, mourn as if you've lost your only son. That's the kind of repentance God is calling you to. In other words, true repentance is like the wailing of this woman at this funeral. And many avoid repentance in the same way that we avoid funerals, right? We, we don't want to go because we don't want to be uncomfortable, and repentance is discomfortable. Right? We, we hate it. We want to get away from it. And we refuse to confront the reality of our sin and even the consequences of sin. And many turn to alcohol. They turn to entertainment to drown out the pain. 
but sin inevitably leads to misery. So, so turning to, to the world for comfort is like fixing a broken bone with a Band-Aid. It's just not going to do anything. It's only going to allow the wound to get worse. Now, typically, Jesus healed those who expressed faith. In fact, when you go back to chapter 7, same chapter, but just go back a few verses to verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, what did he hear? He heard the expression of faith of the centurion. When the centurion says, I, you can heal my servant, right? you have the authority. Right? In verse 7, therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and my servant do this, and he does it. Hey, he didn't need Jesus to come into his house. He knew that Jesus could just declare that healing. That was a strong faith, and it caused Jesus to marvel in verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. That was oftentimes how Jesus healed. He healed after this marvelous expression of faith. You see it again in Mark 5, 34. And so we might even assume that Jesus only healed those who initiated an encounter with him. Those who went to him, sought him, expressed faith in him, and then received that. But if you think this widow was in any condition to do that, then you've not been listening. She was miserable. She was hopeless. She was not searching. She was not expecting resurrection power. She had, she had nothing to live for at this point. So the funeral procession was stopped in its tracks when Jesus saw the woman and has compassion upon her. That's what we see in verses 13 through 15. Look at, let's read 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Now, we know Jesus has compassion. We know the way in which he says that is not harsh. You know, don't weep. But he's, he's filled with compassion for her. So he says something that is still jarring. I mean, how are you going to receive that? No matter how nice it's put, do not weep. Are you kidding me? Everyone there would have been jarred by that comment. Everyone would have been stunned and astonished that he would have the audacity to say such a thing. Not only that, he goes up to the beer and he touches the beer. And the bearers are like, what do we do? And they just stop. He halts the funeral procession. This is just not something you're going to see every day. This is not something any of the people in the crowd have seen before. He's touching a, a funeral beer like that would have would be like touching a leper, immediately making the person unclean. And so no one did that. Numbers five two tells us that. But what happens when Jesus touches a leper? What happens when Jesus touches a beer? Instead of becoming unclean, he removes the defilement of death. Not, not through his touch, not as if the touch itself was the one that, that healed, but he was not defiled by what he did. In fact, he brought healing and cleansing. 
Jesus was unique. We just looked at the healing that Elijah um, was involved with, and you have another example of a of someone who a prophet who raises the dead with Elisha. Elijah's, um, you know, the the one who replaced Elijah. So you have two prophets also healing, raising people from the dead. First Kings seventeen and Second Kings four. But neither of them, when you read the description of what took place, these prophets are crying out to the Lord. They're asking God to resurrect the dead. Jesus here is able to resurrect by his own words. He reveals himself by the way in which he heals, that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And it, and it causes me to wonder, right, when we hear about modern healers, you watch TBN and you think these guys that are going around healing people, why don't they ever stop funeral processions? Why don't they ever interrupt those? Why don't they show up at the hospital? Jesus commanded a dead man to arise, and he did it. The, the man sat up and began speaking. And the text is, is explicit. The dead man sat up. So this young man is the first of three accounts. You have Jairus' daughter in the next chapter, also raised from the dead. And then you have the example of uh, Lazarus. You can read that in John 11. It's also interesting that none of those, and there's other examples of, of resurrections, especially around the, the resurrection of Jesus. You have many others who, who rose, who came out of the graves, testified of Christ and his power. So, in, interestingly, in all of these examples, not one of them gives us a description of the afterlife. You're reading the passage, and it, and it just, it, he does start speaking. Maybe at that point he was sharing something about what he saw. It would be wonderful to know what he said at that point, but it wasn't something that God thought was important for us to hear or know. And it was probably something mundane, like I'm hungry. Are we going to go get some food? <laughs> I don't know. But there's no description of the afterlife. That's contrary to what we have on the New York Times bestsellers list, right? You can read all about what their experience was like. Just don't trust it if you do. Because what we have in Scripture is many opportunities to hear about that and no description of it. So what we do know is that these resurrections are messianic signs. They're signs that Jesus was who he said he was. That he was the Son of God. That he was the Messiah. He was the righteous branch. He was the one who they were waiting for. And yet he didn't act the way that they expected him to. They thought he would bring revolution. They thought he would overthrow Rome. And instead, he's going through healing people, performing miracles, bringing forgiveness and restoration. So they're messianic signs, but all of these men who, who are, and women who were raised from the dead, they, they were perishable. They died again. They went through it twice. Jesus was the firstborn of those raised imperishable. That's how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15. And so we join him in that in our future resurrection where we are raised with an imperishable body. And that's, 
That's the hope and joy that replaces our sin and misery. Jesus was despised and rejected throughout his ministry, especially on the cross. He was a man of sorrows. He was filled with grief. And so we can trust that he has gone through the harshest realities that life has to offer. And so when he has compassion, when he promises to have compassion on you, you can believe it. You can trust it. You can rest in him. He can bear your griefs and your sorrows. His earthly trials only enriched his compassion. And so now, seated at the Father's right hand, Jesus knows, he understands, and he feels compassion in his glorified humanity. And he will for all eternity. So do you believe in this universal resurrection that we will all be raised to life and to face judgment, as we read in John 5? Do you believe that he who raised Jesus will also raise your mortal body, Romans 8, 11? Do you believe that the dead shall awake and sing for joy, Isaiah 26, 19? Do you believe that all your present sorrows and pains will be removed and that every tear will be wiped away in the new heavens and the new earth? If so, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, to encourage one another with that hope. Talk about it often, not just on Resurrection Sunday, on just one week out of the year. Encourage one another with the hope that we will always be with the Lord. These are glorious promises, and they belong to whoever places their hope in Christ alone for salvation. They remind us that temporary grief and pain is followed by eternal peace and joy. And so we see something of that in this passage at the last section, verses 16 through 17. So you have a, a funeral procession, a funeral resurrection is the second point, verses 13 through 15. And then this last point, verses 16 through 17, is a funeral transformation. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. So imagine the crowd's reaction here. This dead... Dead men didn't speak back then either. They were shocked. They were astonished. Grieving mothers at funerals weren't weren't all of a sudden overwhelmed with joy and relief. Where their, their tears of sorrow were transformed into tears of joy. They knew God was at work. They understood something powerful was taking place. Those who were gathered together mourning, even those who were just joining the scene, maybe they were, you know, they were following Jesus, they could have quickly gotten into the, you know, to um, begin to experience some pity for this woman. Especially if they knew anything about her circumstances or as people might have been expressing to them what was taking place. So as they're mourning, now all of a sudden their, their reaction is one of silence and praise, right? One of kind of, they're just dumbfounded. They're filled with fear. But it's not a dreadful or a terrorizing kind of fear. It's one of amazement, one of awe. 
as they recognize God is at work. There is no denying Jesus' power at this point. They acknowledge that they must honor it. But there's also something lacking in what, what they do say. A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. There's kind of a sense in which maybe they think that someone from the Old Testament is among them. That someone has come to show once again God's power. And maybe they think it's Elijah or Elisha. Old Testament prophets always foreshadowed uh, Jesus, but they also lacked his glory and authority. They pointed forward to Jesus. And so when the fulfillment is here, they are still looking at the shadow. And, and I say that because a few chapters later, we'll see this, right? The crowd is confused. Chapter 9, verses 18 through 19. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. It's the same confusion. It's the same language. That's as far as they get to understanding the power of God that was among them, right? That, was, that They had an awe of God's power, but it was short-lived, or at least it was, it was incomplete. And the awe of God's power is always short-lived and incomplete for those who do not receive the grace of God's gospel. And those who do not see their own sin and turn from it and receive the grace that's held out to them in Christ alone. So this funeral procession, it, it sobers us. It puts us in a, in a frame of mind where we feel inadequate, uh, not really sure what to say or how to help. And then this funeral resurrection gives us the only hope that we have in life and in death. And then we find this funeral transformation where those who mourn are ushered into fearful praise. As truncated and as inadequate as it was, we do see some, something of the transfer, transformational power that is available to those who repent and place their faith in Christ alone. So Christ's resurrection power assures his ability to resurrect us upon his return and to accomplish the greater work, even now, of regenerating our dead souls. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5, gives us that description. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive Together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. 
So when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. We can understand that in both ways. That there is a resurrection of the dead that awaits all of us. And yet there's a hope that we can receive even now. All right, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Arise and live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the theme of this resurrection is, is not just something to reflect upon that happened thousands of years ago. It's not just a, a theme that we look forward to in the future, but it's something that speaks to us even now, that calls us out of the deadness of sin into the newness of life, that calls us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Lord, we, we can only depend upon you to do what we ourselves are incapable of doing. Lord, we see our, our sin. We feel our misery. And, and Lord, it's hard to even snap out of it sometimes. But we pray that this reflection upon the resurrection would give us a great sense of hope. No matter what's in store in our future, Lord, we recognize that we will go through trials and suffering and sadness in this life. Lord, may it always point us to that future hope. May we always cling to the cross. May we cling to Christ, our Lord and Savior, who suffered in our place and who gives us the assurance of that future resurrection by his own resurrection, being the first fruits. Now seated at your right hand, Lord, interceding on our behalf when we don't know what to pray, when we don't know how to pray, Lord, we have a Savior praying for us. We have a spirit who speaks words that, that we can only groan. And Lord, we are grateful for this reminder and we're grateful for the res resurrection power that you've revealed to us in giving us repentance and life, giving us faith, Lord. And so we pray that as we respond now that we would give you that glory and praise that is appropriate for the work that you've done in our hearts. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, Lord, may all of it be a means of equipping us for the trials that lay ahead, that it would unite us together in love and once again build us up uh, for whatever it is you've called us to. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand. Our hymn of response is Worship Christ, the Risen King, hymn number 369.